I hope I'm not the only one that just feels like, man, my heart's going to explode. This has just been wonderful so far, and I'm hoping that we will further enjoy God and His Word as we continue in His Word in Genesis 1. Maybe it's because you don't know what I'm about to say, that your heart's not exploding, but I want to just give an introductory, I don't know, warning or heads up. I feel as if the concepts and the ideas that we're about to hear are some of the most heavy intellectually, heavy in terms of their implications for our lives ethically. There's, there's a weight to this word that we're about to hear. I actually don't think that there could be a more relevant or practical message for you to hear in the world that we're living in right now than the one that I'm hoping by God's grace to give to you. Whether I do an adequate job or not, the, the contents of these verses from God's word have wonderful ramifications for your life, for who you are, for who we are, for what our place is in this world. I, I don't know if it can be overstated. I, I want to perk your attention. That's what preachers try and do when they get up. There's something for you to listen to this morning. Hear me out. God's word is good. I don't, I don't know what else to add to it. There is such treasures in these words. And so I pray, like, let's pause. Let's pray one more time. Let's just briefly pray that we don't fall asleep this morning. Like, even give us the grace to stay awake, to be alert, to help me be clear. I think this is just life-changing stuff. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time of worship we've already had, the songs that we've sung, the scriptures that we have heard. What glorious truths. And I pray that we would glory in these. So help me speak clearly and carefully. Help us to understand and help us to live lives that would honor you as we apply these things to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Very brief recap. This is the third week of a series of messages in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. The name Genesis comes from the Greek word in the beginning. And so this is a book of beginnings. That's what it means. We've heard the beginning of not just an origins story, but a temple story. That was two weeks ago. So if you weren't here and you're wondering why I say a temple story, that God is not just telling us about the world coming together. He's telling us about how he's making sacred space for his people to be priests. And today we're going to think more about how we're also kings. So priestly temple story. That was week one. Week two, we just mostly looked at the first verse. In the beginning, God. The story is about God. It begins with God. He's the subject. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end. Everything's about him. And this is important foundational truth. And we need this week's message to balance out last week for those of you that were here to think, so where do we come in? If it's just all about God, then does our, do our lives matter? They do. They matter a whole lot. That's why the chapter doesn't end with just in the beginning God. This entire chapter is setting us up, I believe, for day six. I believe the structure, literarily, I think some of these things are obvious even as you read them in the English. Notice, for example, the patterns that you see in verse three. And God said, let there be light. 
Verse 6, let there be an expanse. Verse 9, let the waters and the heavens. God is saying, and God said, let there be, and it was so. And this pattern continues, and then notice what happens in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Whoa, hold on. That broke the pattern. And God said, let there be. But it's, not, it's not what it says in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. That's a clue that day six is the climax of creation's story. Another clue would be if you were to just add up the words. So take day one, take day two, take day three, put them in a chart, and you have a little bar graph. You'd see there's a little bit of words in day one, a little bit of words for day two. And then notice the double, triple amount of words on the bar graph that shoots up for day six. How much more time and attention day six gets than the other days. That should alert your attention. Another thing you would notice is in the Bible right in front of us, this English Standard Version, I think most translations have this. Look at verse 27. Notice the way that the the verses here are indented. You see that? They're kind of bracketed out. They're separated from the rest. It's because this is Hebrew poetry here. There's parallelism in this verse, and so it's bracketed out to show you that this is a different writing style than the rest of the chapter. Well, you don't get that for any of the other days. And all throughout the books of Moses, he uses poetry to comment or use commentary of what he just said. So there's a pattern even throughout the whole books of Moses of the use of poetry that when something important happens, so let me give you an example. In Exodus chapter 15, one of the greatest things are going to happen in the five books of Moses. God's people are saved out of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh and they're freed to go to the promised land. Right after that happens, what do you get? A whole chapter of poetry to explain, to comment on this great act. So God just did a great act in day six, and here's a little poetry. And friends, that actually is a pattern, I think, that goes all through the books of Moses. I can give you a big, long book that explains that, but for now, just notice it in chapter one. So what does this mean? I have two questions for us and three points. Question one, we'll cover point one. Question two, we'll cover points two and three. Here's question one. Who are you? Do you know who you are? It's an easy question on the one hand. But when you think about it, think more deeply about it, who really are you? And How many of us in our day-to-day lives, how many in the world are struggling with their identity and knowing who they are? Could there be anything more relevant for you today than to know who you are, why you exist? I'm going to give you the answer right away. And I'm going to hopefully show from the scriptures where this answer comes from. It's a family-friendly kid answer. You are a prince and a princess. That's who you are. You want a theology word because that's too family-friendly? Sounds too much like Disney. You are a vice-regent, a viceroy. Is that better? Or you want to stick with prince and princess? What I'm getting at is what does it mean that you're made in the image of God? Let's read this scripture. I'm going to read verses 24 to the end of the chapter. 
And we're going to really camp out on this idea that you were made in the image of God. So verse 24, let's read this whole day six. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to the kinds of the livestock according to their kinds and every thing that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. We talked about patterns, right? Notice the pattern breaks again. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it wasn't just good, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Last week I argued that I believe that the order of this chapter seems to be that in day one it corresponds with day four. Let there be light and then you see the explanation of earthly lights, the sun and the moon on day four. Day two, let there be an expanse. This is the Hebrew word rakia. It's a very strange word. That's why when you read different translations you see vault, you see sky, you see heavens. We're just trying to figure out how to best translate it. The idea here is that he's talking about the upper skies that would have been observable from standing on the ground. And there's water that comes from them. You all ever see rain? It comes from the sky. So there's a separation of the water in the sky and the water on the ground, and that's day two. Well, what's day five all about? Day five is all about fish, And birds corresponds. Day two and day five, they match up. And then day three is all about the land. It's going to sprout vegetation and plants and all kinds of fruit. Well, who's going to eat that stuff? All the people in day six with all the animals. See how these match up. So I think that there's a literary structure here. As I argued last week, I don't think that this means that some of you who believe this is 24-hour days... There's any reason to doubt that that could be what's going on here. But for those of you that sternly believe that these are literally 24-hour days and think that you're not a Christian if you don't, I think that you should reconsider some of the literary structures of Genesis 1 and be open to the fact that we can be Christians who agree on the Bible, believe in its authority, agree to disagree on certain matters of how we read it, and still love one another without denying the Bible. And we can have room for that. So that was last week. As we get to day six and we see it's parallel with day three, we see that God makes first, in verse 24, all the creatures, beasts of the earth. 
and all the livestock and things that creep on the ground, which means likely that when God says this was good, that unfortunately bugs and maybe reptiles were good. So I don't know if that's bad news for some of you, thinking that God's creation, oh no, I don't want bugs, I don't like bugs, get rid of bugs. No, God says they're good. And then here in verse 26, this is where we want to camp out. What does this phrase mean, let us make man in our image and our likeness? Well, it certainly seems that we're different from the animals. I hope you'd agree with that. You know, if I had the choice this morning to say finances are really tight, and let's just say for sake of illustration, I own a dog and a cat, and they cost money, and I say, look, i got to make some cuts in the budget. I'm thinking somebody's got to go. Who would you think? The dog or the cat? Or the kids? Or the wife? Now, if we do this mathematically, we would probably argue that maybe some of the kids, or maybe my wife, they cost more, so economically it makes more sense to maybe get rid of the kids or the wife. But we don't think mathematically, we think biblically, we think, I think just common sense-wise, no, you get rid of the dog, Phil. We don't treat the dog, we don't treat the cat in the same way. Some of you might be vegetarians. My personal opinion is you're missing out on a lot of wonderful things. Genesis 9 tells us why we eat animals according to God's provision, allowing animals Later in the book of Acts, we're told that we can eat all kinds of animals. There's no distinction between clean and unclean, which means we get to even eat bacon. There's all kinds of wonderful things like that. But I bring that up because nobody seems to get a really big fit if later this afternoon I eat some beef. But if I kill my wife, like that's a big deal, right? We treat these as different. So that's one step, and I think that's obvious, but I don't think that's going far enough. True, we're separate from the animals. Some people just think that the image of God is merely saying that we have mental and spiritual capacities that animals don't have. I think that's true. I think that that's an element of it, but I don't think that's going far enough. We weren't just set apart from the animals. Read the scriptures carefully, even here in front of you, and notice we are set above the animals. That's different. We rule the animals. We are to subdue the land and we are to rule over them, not just be separate from them. We're to use these mental capacities and spiritual capabilities for doing good to animals. We shouldn't be cruel to animals or the land that we've been given. So, there's one concept. We are above and separate from Furthermore, I think we need to understand that if we just limit it to mental or physical capabilities that are different from the animals, what then would you say if someone is born with some sort of deficiency or autism or disability mentally? Would you then argue that they are less human or not made in God's image? That's why it's good to maybe make our definition further than just mental, spiritual capabilities. The word image throughout the Old Testament, if you were to take this Hebrew word that's before you to make man in our image, guess what you will see most often in the English? 
idol. It's the word idol or icon, a statue of a god or a king. Because in fact, oftentimes, so remember, we've talked about this over the last few weeks. We need to get into the world of Genesis 1. We need to get into our time machines 30,000 years ago. And since we don't have time machines, we get into literature. We read as much as we can about Egyptian and Assyrian and all kinds of different worldviews of the time that Genesis was, been, was given to the Israelites. And as we do that, we realize that gods and kings were one and the same often. Kings were deified. So quickly, if, if this seems like a foreign concept, you can just read your Bible. You don't even have to read old ancient Near East literature. Let's turn our Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is on page 739 in the black Bibles around you. I want to read you an example of the sort of worldview if we dive into their world and how kings were deified with statues. It's a familiar story. But let's refresh our memories and, and let's see. Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image, an idol. There's our word. It was of gold. Its height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I wonder what's going to happen. Do you guys know what's going to happen here? He makes this image. Then the satraps, the prefects, in verse 3, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, all the magistrates, and all the officials and provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O people. So imagine someone standing up, trumpeting out with some sort of megaphone device. O peoples, nations, languages. That when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and language fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I don't know if it could be more clear. That's the kind of world that the Israelites are living in. Kings are being worshipped. They're being deified. They're being seen as, and this is, this is language, by the way. Get, get familiar with this language for understanding your whole Bible. They were called sons of God. They were seen as the son of whatever God they worshipped. For example, there's a statue that says the living statue of Egyptian king so-and-so, the son of God, the inscription that was underneath of that statue. It wasn't just about their physical appearance, the statue and the image, because the kings would oftentimes be men, and they would represent even sometimes female goddesses. So we're not talking when we talk about image, physical resemblance. So think about you right now. Who are you? Do you physically resemble the character attributes of God? Some people argue that. that. That's not what this word means. It's not what it's used for. 
We don't physically resemble an invisible spirit God. He is the invisible God. The image of God means to reflect its traits as a ruler. So it doesn't, I think, go far enough for us us to say it's just reflecting his traits. No, it's reflecting his traits as a ruler, as king. That's what the word image means in the context of the ancient Near East and, I think, the biblical context. I want to show a picture real quick to make sure we're all getting a visual here. This is an example of a deified statue, similar to what maybe I just read in Daniel. So notice you have a head of a man with a long beard, but then you have some sort of ox-like horse body with wings. This is extremely common in archaeological digs and statues and things that we can find all over the place in the ancient Near East. So that's the image that these hearers would have had in mind when they saw this word, and this word was being applied to them. That's a gnarly picture, isn't it? Imagine, I mean, you can't really get the scope of this, but I'm like maybe halfway up its leg or so. These things are huge. They're, they're to be showing the power and the might and the strength and the ability of this ruler. You can take the image down. What I want us to see here, why this matters, is because in the context of that word and those pictures, imagine hearing as an Israelite, let us make humans. This is the word Adam. It can mean name Adam. It can mean human. And this is what I think the best way to read this is. Let us make humans in our image. Let us make an idol of humans. And what did God make when he made an idol of humans? You, me. So, so catch this. This, this is, this is going to be mind-blowing. At least it was for me. I'm sure it was for them. I'm positive it was for them. These people who are getting Genesis 1, the Israelites, as Moses is recording that, before they got the five books of Moses, they heard the Ten Commandments first. I don't know if you knew that. I don't know if you thought all of this was together. But God gave the Ten Commandments on these tablets before the books of Moses were ever written in Exodus. So, so imagine this. You've known for a long time, have no other gods before me. Command number two, what is it? Make no images. Make no idols. That's been beat into your head over and over again as an Israelite because you've had the Ten Commandments for a long time. And then for the first time, somebody tells you that in the beginning, he says, let us make idols. Now, part of the reason why we shouldn't make idols is because they will never give the full resemblance of who God is. And that is a pathetic thing to bow down and worship. That statue is nothing compared to what God is like. It's lifeless, it doesn't speak, it doesn't have a personality, it has no love, and God is a God who speaks, who has a personality, who loves. He's a person. So we don't bow down to inanimate objects like physical, wooden, concrete statues. That's one reason why the second commandment is given. Do you know the other reason why the second commandment is given? Because God already made a statue of himself. And if you're looking at me, you're looking at one of them. 
And you look around this room and you're looking at a whole bunch more of them. We are his statue to resemble him in his likeness. And not just his general character attributes, but his character attributes to rule as rulers. We were to be made princes and princesses. Now, if you're not seeing that just in the concept, so they have a worldview where image is for kings and kings only. And you're thinking, really? This is the way we should read Genesis 1? I don't think so, Pastor Phil. I'm really skeptical right now. Who's the best interpreter of the Bible? Me or the Bible? The inspired word of God, interpreting the inspired word of God? Let's go with that. Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8 is commentary on these verses about the image of God. So in case you're wondering, I don't really know. I'm hoping to make it further plain to you. Yes, you were made as a statue. You were made as an image to reflect the likeness of God as a king, as a queen, as a prince, as a princess. Psalm 8 is on 450 in the Black Bibles around you. Look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So, pause. God's glory. Glory is a word for the weightiness. It's the kavod, the, the weight, the seriousness, the obedience that's demanded. His glory is above the heavens. The heavens are the highest thing that the, the writer of this psalm even knows of. It's like, no, no, it's above that. It's exalted high. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avengers. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Have you ever done this? You looked up into the night sky and then asked this question in verse 4. What is man? What is humans that you are mindful of of him, of us, the son of man, that you should care for him. Verse 5, yet you have made humans, you have made him a little lower, and then here's the word here, you have made him a little lower than Elohim. You have made him a little lower. And then so context is going to help us. Is Elohim the word for God or is it for heavenly beings? And you read through your different translations and some will say made him a little lower than God. Some will say heavenly beings. The point is the next phrase. We know that you're, you're close. You're close to the heavenly beings. You're close to maybe even God himself. But either way, look at verse 5 of the second half. And you crowned him. This is royal language. You've been crowned with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing it from God's word himself? Not Pastor Phil. uh, No, the Bible says, okay? To be made in God's image is to be crowned with glory and honor, to be set above everything else in all creation like a king. 
like a queen. Who are you? You are a prince and a princess. And you are to rule and have dominion and reflect the rule of God in all of the earth. How do you rule? You bring life. You garden. This is what we'll get to in chapter 2. How does Adam rule the earth? Subdue it. He gardens it. He brings order to it. He names the animals. He brings human flourishing. What happens to your yard if you don't do anything to it for a long time? Your grass grows, weeds grow, and your neighbors call the village and say, hey, these people need to get their act together. It's making the neighborhood look bad and you get fined. Like You can't even grow your grass too long. We have to subdue and rule over even our very plots of land that we're in charge of here in America. Do you realize that that's part of the trickle-down effect of subduing and ruling that was created in all of us? You were made to take care of the land and the people within it. Be fruitful and multiply. Take care of people. Take care of the land. It can get wild and chaotic but you're to subdue it and enforce your will on it for good and for life. This is the call of human beings, every single one of you. But we live in a world that tells you all kinds of lies about who you are. So how relevant is this? How many of you are struggling with finding your value in what you do? Your work, your career, your achievements, jealous about other people who have better careers, wishing you had better talents. How many of you have even thought or said, I'm just nobody? I don't do anything great. How many of us think, I want to be a world changer? And then in that youthful zeal, you find yourself sitting at a desk working on Excel spreadsheets day after day. But I want to change the world. How many, of you, how many of you were told, you can be whoever you want to be. Just dream and be whoever you want to be. This is the world we live in. This is the air we breathe. This is the messages we're hearing. This is what we're being told about who we are. Who are the celebrities that are being put up before us? Are you starting to realize that as we look at Genesis 1 and then all of the Bible, that your essence, your value, your dignity is in God, in who he says you are, not who anyone else says you are, and that every single job that you do doesn't matter so much what you're doing, but who you're doing it for and how you're trying to create life and prosperity for all those around you, no matter what it is. Any moms in here changing diapers, feeling, I wish I could be doing something more significant, and I'm jealous of all the other women who have jobs. Stop thinking that. For the good of your soul, realize Genesis 1 is helping you transform your mind and your thinking that your work matters. It matters very much to change diapers. It matters very much to care for children. This was part of the design to be fruitful and multiply and care for the dominion of those underneath of you. Rule over them well. Any teachers, 
getting tired of teaching and saying the same things over and over again and feeling like they're, they're not listening. Any businessmen and women feeling like all they do is the same things over and over again and you're on this just treadmill of life. Insert in biblical doctrine. This is why doctrine matters. Insert in theology. You were made in the image of God. It transforms everything when you see that the work you're doing, no matter what you're doing, matters to bring life. The only reason we would say your job doesn't matter is if it's bringing death to people, like you're killing people or you're destroying people's lives. You're working at strip clubs. Please don't work at strip clubs. This is, we need to have a talk if that's what you're doing. Not helpful. Not helpful for the women that are working in those places. Some people are literal gardeners, landscapers, custodians, and we in our society look down on these people as if these are lesser jobs. The first job we were given was to garden. Friend, realize it's not about the gardening, it's about bringing life, bringing humanity to its full flourishing potential. You are significant, the work you're doing is significant, and oh, how desperately we need to hear this word. One of the implications of this is that many people who are Christians divide unnecessarily their job and Christian ministry as if there is a secular work and a sacred work and that the real work of the the ministry and that pleases God is what I'm doing now as a pastor, what Billy and Olga are about to do as they go overseas to do missions work, what counselors do when they work full-time counseling ministry, those people are really doing the work. I just got to work in my teacher job, and maybe somebody will hear the gospel, and that's the only reason I'm doing it. That's terrible thinking. And I know people in this church have said those sort of things to me. So you're here. This is us. We struggle with these things. We're believing these lies. I want to close out this point with a quote from C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. It's a sermon he gave, and he says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature through which you'd be strongly tempted to worship if you saw them now in what they would one day be. In all of our conducts, in all of our dealings with one another, in all friendships, in all love, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But to us, immortals, that is whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, We either give immortal honors or everlasting splendors. C.S. Lewis says, if you only knew one day who you would become, you'd be tempted to fall down and worship. I want to say it this way. If you knew who you were already created to be from the beginning, not just who you will one day be, that's true too as the image of God is restored through Jesus Christ. If you knew who you were originally made to be, you are gods and goddesses. 
You are prince and princesses. And I mean God in the little G, so please don't think, take that the wrong way. Let all of our dealings with one another be affected by all our friendships, all our love, all our play, all our politics. There are no ordinary people. Which brings us to our second point, second question, who are we? We, the gathering of this group of people, we are an embassy. No, 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 I don't mean this is Embassy Church, the name that was dubbed this church. No, no, we are an embassy of heaven. If we are royal, if we are crowned with glory, if we believe these things about who God has made us originally and that we've been restored into this royal line through Jesus Christ, then you, my friend, is an, you are an ambassador in an embassy of heaven. This is why 1 Peter chapter 2 calls us a royal priesthood. Let me put the emphasis on royal. We are ambassadors working for the royal king of kings and lord of lords. We as image bearers are also ambassadors for Jesus Christ here in the church. So my question to you, I want to apply this. If we are an embassy, what if we treated one another this way in here and out there? What would that look like? What if we were not just a loving family? We talk about that language. We are not just a church where we come for a gathering. We are a family. I've said that a lot. What if we added a phrase? We are not just a family that loves one another. What if we are a royal family that loves one another? What if you saw the people sitting around you as princes and princesses, or as 1 Peter chapter 3 says, co-heirs with Jesus Christ? An heir, co-heir. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, why are you so upset about things that you might lose on the earth? You're going to rule the world one day. I think one implication is we would have biblical gender equality. Biblical gender equality. I think the word biblical would be helpful because of all the talk about gender equality in our world today. But notice our text says that God created man, humans, in his image, that's verse 27. In the image of God, he created him, and then notice the phrase, male and female, he created them. I believe that this chapter is talking about the similarities, or you could say the unity within the diversity of creation. Here, the stress and emphasis in chapter 1 is on our sameness, and in chapter 2, we're going to see our distinctions. So for our sameness, let us realize that God has designed that he image himself through male and female in equal dignity. There's not a superior gender. And all through the days of human civilization, since the fall of the world, there have been men who have tried to use their power and their strength to oppress women. This should not be so in a church. This should not be so in our society. And Christians should be working as much as they can to help oppressed women. We are to be a mirror to God. Have you ever looked out a window and saw your reflection in the window, the glass pane? You know what I'm talking about? You see a reflection? Men, I want you to think of yourself as the glass pane. Women, have you ever looked at like aluminum foil or some sort of aluminum and saw there's a reflection here? Both of those things do not give the perfect reflection. It's not super clear by themselves. But do you know what happens when you put aluminum on a glass pane. It's called a mirror, and you see yourself way better. 
God created man in his image and his likeness. And he made them male and female because he knew that together humanity would better reflect the glory of God's rule than just one individually. This is why the Bible describes God as the nursing mother in Isaiah 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child? No. Even if she could forget, the scripture says, I would never forget. That's a promise from God. I will never forget you in the same way that a nursing mom would never forget her child. Because God wants you to know and have a picture in your head when he says these things, this is what I'm like. I'm a God who keeps my promises. I'm a God who will never forget you or leave you. That's why he also says that I discipline my sons. So do not regard lightly my discipline because I'm treating you like a son. Disciplinary father, nursing mother, God's giving us images so that when we put the whole picture together, you're not left with an incomplete idea of what God's rule is like. That's a much better reflection. Therefore, implications for biblical gender equality, I believe we as a church and as men should fight like crazy against pornography. I don't mean just for the sake of your own soul, men, and that is a worthwhile sermon to give. For the sake of your own soul and its decay, you should fight against pornography. But for the sake of women, fight against pornography. Because this abuse of women's bodies and objectifying them is not helping you, nor is it helping them. It is treating them like they're just some object for your pleasure. They were made for God's pleasure, not yours. So men, what if you knew the stories of the many women that are being looked at on the computers and the homes that we have, and you knew the stories of how they got to that point to be selling themselves out like this? I promise most of you would get really sick to your stomach. She was not made for this. She was made to reflect him. This is why we have two members of our church that work regularly, month in and month out, to pray for women who are in slavery, or being abused into sex trafficking. Even this very Tuesday, they're going to gather together to pray, have a candle lighting. Talk to Monica or Lara Shanta if you want to get more info about how you can join them in having a cause to say, women being oppressed by sex slavery is awful. Let's do everything we can to bring life and impose our will and rule over this world in any way we can. I think there's implications here about homosexuality, not just in the fact that male and female, he created them, and so therefore we see that God's design is for man and woman to be together. There will be more we'll have to say in weeks to come about this idea of marriage. But for now, let us realize that we should have the idea that some people, some people who have same-sex attraction from as long as they can remember, should not feel ostracized from our church or from us loving them. This is a very different issue than somebody who is actively spending their life in homosexual practice. Someone with same-sex attraction can choose to act on those impulses or not. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, when he quotes Genesis chapter 1 and quotes Genesis chapter 2, he says this strange thing, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately. He says, you know, there were eunuchs, and eunuchs are men who are castrated, so they're private parts, chopped off, okay? It's graphic, but get the idea. There are eunuchs who had this happen from the time that a king enforced this eunuch lifestyle. 
Then there were eunuchs who were that way from birth. And then there are eunuchs who for the sake of the kingdom of God have chosen to be eunuchs. Do you realize that in the mind of Jesus, your ultimate identity is not in your sexuality. Your ultimate identity is in your image bearing of God for his kingdom. Did you get that last phrase? There are some eunuchs who because of their choice choose not to have marital relations, choose not to get married, and choose not to have sexual expression because, precisely because, they're ruling as kings for the kingdom of God. Do you see how the very undermining point of homosexual arguments is undermined when you say, listen, what makes you a person, what makes you a human being is not that you get to decide to do whatever you want to do because of whatever impulse that you have. What makes you a human being is to realize that you were made in God's image to rule in the way that he has determined we should rule. What happens in the Genesis story when Adam and Eve decide they're going to rule however they want to rule? Well, I'll let this, garden come, this uh, serpent come in. How about we eat from that tree of the good? No, no, that's not ruling and subduing and taking care of the land like they were meant. This is what happens when we sin, good and evil. When we try and define that ourselves instead of from God, all sorts of distortions can happen. Therefore, celibacy, or should I say even singleness, does not make any of you less human. What makes you less human is when you decide what's good and right for yourself and not follow the cues from God and his word about what is right and good. This is the same thing that could be applied to abortion. A woman is giving her body for the sake of service for life, to flourish life. She does not have the choice to choose when that life starts or ends. God opens the womb and God closes the womb. We don't. The issue is not about women who are in extreme cases to protect their life, that we have to maybe make hard, difficult decisions. We're talking about healthy pregnancies where women decide, I'm going to make a choice to end life however I want, no matter how I view them being made in God's image whatsoever. That's you becoming the authoritarian above God. I choose what's good and what's right. No, we obey God's law to protect and to obey so that way we can help life flourish. We want to see image bearers in the womb live. And now in case any of you are thinking at this point, knowing these choices of application that I've made, oh, I see. Interesting, Pastor Phil. It's election season. Hmm. Abortion, homosexuality, yes. In case you're thinking that, I want you to know there is no sense to which I say we are an embassy, that we are an embassy of the Republican or Democratic or Libertarian Party. That is not the kind of embassy we are. We are an embassy of heaven. And as you read through the scriptures and as you think through the issues, even in our political world we live in, you will find that sometimes the church will find itself agreeing with all kinds of views and all kinds of different parties. So if the church is an embassy of heaven where we care for, let's say, social justice and the poor. Does that make us a Democrat? Or if we care for life and for the child in the womb, does that make us a Republican? 
It makes us Christians that love God and his word. Should we not care about ethnic inequalities as well? The tensions between black and white that are going on. I know as I look around the room, I see more white than black. So this might be extremely relevant for all of us. When you hear the news about the shootings that are happening in Charlotte and Ferguson and Minnesota and Baltimore and way too many places to start counting, right? Do you quickly take sides, one side or the other? Pro-police, pro-African-American. Is one of those Republican and Democrat? Friends, as Christians, as people who believe in the image of God, as people who see that all people in all ethnicities have dignity and value and their lives should be protected in every way possible, we should grieve with the police families who have lost lives as men who have, and women have given their lives to protect and preserve our safety. We should also grieve when we see racial profiling and injustice done to black African-American men and women. And this is not because I'm anti-police and pro-African-American, but I was encouraged by an African-American friend to say, hey, it would be wise for you, especially as a pastor, Phil, to ask people what their experiences are like as African-Americans. And if you've never done that, I would encourage you to take this advice as well. So even recently, two weeks ago, I'm at a pastor's meeting, and there was an African-American who I knew grew up in the south side of Chicago and used to be a gangbanger. I knew he'd probably had many run-ins with the police. But I knew now he was a Christian. He was transformed. He's a pastor of a church in a mixed community. I asked him, could you just shed light, inform my white, ignorant ears with what your experience has been like as an African-American man? He shared that there was a lot of good police. There was a lot of times where they were doing the right thing because he was doing the wrong thing and they were doing good things. But he shared story after story of both before becoming a Christian and after becoming a Christian of being in the good neighborhood or the bad neighborhood of all kinds of injustice that's been done to him. Guns pointed at his face when he's just minding his own business. Doing everything he can to try and comply with the police. All I'm trying to say is if you're so ignorant this morning to think that corruption of the fall has not landed on both African Americans and white police officers, black police officers, all kinds of police officers, we have taken the ruling authority that God has given us in Genesis 1, and because of the fall and because of sin, we have abused it for our own purposes. And that exists here in America. And as brothers and sisters, I think we should be at least at the bare minimum empathetic to hear their stories and pray for them and say, I'm so sorry you've had to deal with those things. I mean, my heart broke when I heard about him working a normal job with UPS and a police officer coming from behind him, drinking way too much, pulling out a gun, telling him all kinds of slurs and racial names and saying, what are you doing here, boy? Get out of here. You shouldn't be in this neighborhood. Do you realize that that's, that's normal? So for him, he has a worldview where he's like, I do want to trust the police, but I also know I've had too many run-ins with people who have racially profiled me and said, hey, get out of this neighborhood. That exists. Let's at least listen to them and pray for them. Because they are people. They're not lesser people because of their skin color. So does that make us Democrats? Do you see how Christians kind of just don't fall anywhere nicely or neatly? Depending on how you want to land the issues. So this is not a political sermon. This is a doctrinal sermon. 
about the image of God and how that impacts the way we think about everything. Terrorism would be no more if people didn't think they were superior to others. There's no way Christians could ever be a terrorist if they believed the Bible and lived by it. And there's no way we should look down on terrorists to think as if we're somehow superior to them. Yes, we want justice. Yes, we want safety. But man, we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us because they're made in God's image. And we should be saddened even by the the loss of bin Laden's life. Do you see how serious God takes life when we read Genesis chapter 9? How precious the image-bearing of God is? So this is a completely, totally, hopefully relevant issue for us. You are a prince and a princess. We are an embassy full of ambassadors. Lastly, you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. The story should not end here. The sermon should not end here. The story of the Bible is that you and I are not just princes and princesses, but we have, because of our sin, we have marred the image of God. We have done all kinds of things to use our rule and our authority, not for life, but for harm and for death. But in God's kindness and mercy, he sent a new human. That's literally the words, a new Adam, a second human, onto the earth. His name was Jesus, and Jesus, through his life, shows us what it looks like to rule with authority for good and not evil. He was the ultimate Son of God. So, you guys probably are real familiar. Jesus is the Son of God. That's not just saying that he's the second person of the Trinity. He's the Son of God. He is the Son of God, the King of all creation. That's why all through Jesus' ministry, he talks about, I am preaching the kingdom of heaven. I'm preaching about the kingdom of God. He is a king because we were meant to be kings and we ruined our authority to use it for harm instead of good. Just read Genesis 4 and see what broken humans do with their authority. They kill people. And that's the spiral we see all through Genesis. Jesus used it for life, promoted life, reversed the curse. Colossians 1.15, the first passage we read this morning, Jesus Christ is the image, the icon, the idol, the statue of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint. That's the language of Hebrews chapter 1. God's imprint, his stamp is on Jesus. So look to Jesus to see the way a real human should live and exist. And for those of you who are single, remember I mentioned you're not less human if you're single. Jesus was the fullest human that ever existed, never once had sex, never got married, and lived single his whole life. That does not make you human. So whether you're male or female, whether you're single, whether you're a eunuch by birth, whether you've chosen to be a eunuch, you can be just like Jesus and live the fullest human life possible. But some of you are like, I really kind of stink at that. Yeah, that's why he died. Adam failed, Noah failed, Abraham failed, the nation of Israel failed. Jesus did not fail. He succeeded, and in every way that you and I failed, he succeeded. So he took our place on the cross, even though he did not deserve it, and he died in our place so that the one true human being that's ever walked on this earth, the one image of God, became marred and disgusted. Disgusting to look at because all of our sin was placed on him that the Father turns his face away. 
as we see the most amazing act of kindness and love that's ever happened. 2 Corinthians 3 says, Behold the glory of Christ. And you, as you behold that image, you'll be transformed from one degree of glory to another. How do you change to be more Christ-like? You ever wonder that? I want to do better. I want to be more consistent in these things. I want to promote life. I have so many bad tendencies in me. What, where, what is going on? How do I do this? How do I change my heart? You don't change your heart. You set your gaze on Jesus as you behold him. Remember this phrase, until you die, you behold. What you become, sorry, here's the phrase. You become what you behold. If you behold stars and celebrities and all kinds of people on this earth that we promote, then you will become like them. But if you behold the glory of Jesus, his love, his beauty, his grace, his life-giving, teaching, everything about him, you will become more like him. So behold him and watch his spirit transform you to a new creation so that you will one day, when he returns, rule with him as co-heirs. Friends, this is glorious. This is not just great news. This is glorious news. That the whole gospel is wrapped up in verse 26. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And that through Jesus Christ, you see him, the image of the invisible God, becoming a disgusting human when all the sin of the world is placed on him. But then he resurrects from the dead and brings life. The ultimate act of ruling and imposing his will was the resurrection from the dead where he imposed life on a dead world. And he does that in each of our hearts when we behold him in this way. Okay, we should pray. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this is weighty, heavy stuff. I know I only scratched the surface. I hope that some of this was helpful, but we want to thank you for it this morning. We want to thank you for the cross. We want to thank you for Jesus. We want to thank you that he is the image of the invisible God and that when we behold him, we want to become like him, not to just sit there and look at him, but to go out and rule the world as ambassadors for Christ here in an embassy of heaven in the world that you've given us. Our Father in heaven, we want to pray that you'd help us do that in Jesus' name. Amen. At the center of our worship is the bread and the cup, and so I want to ask us now that as we remain seated, we're going to pass the bread and the cup around. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you believe exactly at least the part that I said that Jesus died for your sins and your hope is in him, and friends, then this bread and cup is a reminder of what he has done for you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're not so sure what it means to be a Christian, it'd be wise for you to just let this pass by. This is a meal for those who say, yes, I, I believe that I am in Christ, not because of who I am, but because of what Jesus has done for me. We're going to remain seated. We're going to sing this song. We're going to hold the bread and the cup until we all take it together. Let's do that now.